We're here on our last morning of this weekend retreat, being joined by some people online. There's some people there? Lots of people. Oh, I can't see you, but um, you can see me and you can imagine that there's, that there's people in this room too. And those sitting in this room, uh, it's nice to kind of reverse the room. Uh, so we don't get any fixed ideas about how the room should be. So we, we changed the room. We made the room backwards this morning. We reversed the room to have a different perspective, a little shift of perspective. It's the same room, but we just have a slightly different perspective. Maybe feels slightly different to be in this reversed room, but also not so different. So. Uh, these teachings we're exploring are kind of like this. Has anybody seen there's this, this new, um, new realm, at least it seems new to me, but I'm seeing it pop up on the internet, uh, these um, AI-generated um, optical illusions. Has anybody seen that? Yeah. Anybody seen them? This is just like in the past few months like uh, maybe Facebook and this kind of thing. It, it, it looks like a, it's a photograph of like, one I'm remembering is like a, a town, like a street in some village. And then if you squint at it, it's like a person's head, you know, and the windows of the, of the buildings are the eyes of the person. So it's like a, a double image and people have painted this kind of thing for a while, like, like Salvador Dali painted some of those double image um, paintings, but now it's, it's like photographic. So it's, it's kind of amazing to me. You'll probably see them soon because I think it's a new thing in the AI realm, the artificial intelligence movement. <laughs> so um, I always appreciate those kind of things because you're really looking at, it just looks like an ordinary um, photograph of a street scene and if nobody mentioned it, I would never bother squinting at it and then seeing, oh, there's this three-dimensional face, kind of one with the photograph of the street. So it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of hidden. The face is kind of hidden, um, but it's kind of not hidden. Right? It's, just, it's just a slight different perspective on the same street scene. It's not really hidden but it seems to be hidden by um, my habitual tendency to just see it as a street scene, see the obvious there. And it's almost like I need somebody to mention, by the way, there's more than the street scene here. If you spend a little time with it and kind of shift your vision a little bit by squinting, blur, blur the image a little bit, and out of the blurred image pops this three-dimensional face. So the, we're usually kind of stuck in one version of things and then, but we can hear um, some teachings that mention different perspectives and different perspectives about the same reality. Um, not creating a new picture, but just seeing something different about this picture. I feel like that's how a lot of Dharma teaching is. Just a slight perspective shift without changing the picture. Kind of like we reversed the zendo <laughs> this morning. 
And then uh, the problem with all these teachings um, about zazen is there's just so many words and it can seem like we're, we're, uh, we're trying to let go of all this conceptual thinking and then we're getting all these new layers of conceptual thinking from the Buddhas and ancestors. So, um, like in the text that we're studying, Menzan Zenji's Self-Enjoyment Samadhi, at some point he says, um, it doesn't help at all to read a recipe when you're starving. It's true, right? <laughs> so, um, so you could hear, you could, you could make that complaint about these long-winded talks. I'm starving for some, for some reality, for some deep Zen, um, deep experiential taste of Zen, and I'm getting all these recipes. You, you might, you might have that thought. So, if so, I mean, Menzan says that in this, says that, makes that statement in this long description of Zazen himself. So, can we hear these, um, these words about Zazen? While we're hearing them, can we hear them uh, as a, <clears throat> kind of a recipe, but actually describing, at the same time, they're describing our actual experience here and now. Hopefully, the, the good Dharma teachings are doing that. They're not about some other realm. They're they're about our experience right now. But they're offering a they're offering a slightly different perspective on our present experience. <clears throat> so uh, again, we're studying this this essay for those arriving um, into this retreat. We're looking at this essay called Self-Enjoyment Samadhi. Uh, the true self, the big self, the uh, all-inclusive, unlocated, timeless self, the unconditioned self, the ungraspable, yet ever-present and aware self, is um, always enjoying itself. by itself, of itself, um, naturally. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling, self-enjoyment, samadhi. Uh, and samadhi means like, presence, presence of mind. And uh, as I would understand it, <clears throat> this, this self-enjoyment samadhi is always happening it's like our, our actually, our true nature is self-enjoyment samadhi. But then sometimes we also talk about it as a practice that we can, I was about to say do, but maybe that's too much. You can't exactly do it, but it's a practice and a verification of reality. There, there is self-enjoyment samadhi going on all the time, even when we're not paying attention to it. Like that hidden face in the in the street scene, it's already there, but, um, but we're not paying attention to it. So then there's a practice and verification of it. And the practice and verification of the self-fulfilling samadhi is uh, partly to hear about it. I wouldn't have noticed that face in the picture if, if the Facebook poster hadn't said, take a look at this picture and squint at it. 
with some like Dharma instruction to shift my perspective. So, um, <clears throat> so in this essay called Self Enjoyment Samadhi, Men uh, Zanzenji in the in the 1700s um, wrote, "Searching for the subject that sees and hears is useless." Sometimes the kind of teachings we're hearing might sound like that's what we're doing. We're searching for the subject that sees and hears. And I would call that the experiencer. The subject that sees and hears is the experiencer. So Menzan says, searching, looking for the subject that sees and hears, the experiencer. That's just useless. The harder you look for the subject of experience, the more you will tire of wastefully struggling since what is seeking and what is being sought cannot be separated. You're searching for the subject, but it's the subject searching for the subject. So uh, what's seeking and what's being sought can't really be separated. Understand that your eyes cannot see themselves, for example. If you're looking to see your eye, you can't quite, as an object, from the point of view of a subject, you can't quite see it. <coughs> so to look for the subject as some kind of objective experience that we could get a hold of is, um, is useless. So this is, a, I would say, a, a kind of a subtle point because in a way it sounds like some of the instructions. We're looking for the subject that sees and hears, the experiencer, but uh, in fact, I would say what Menzan is pointing to, this kind of practice is pointing to, is we're not really looking for the subject that sees and hears the experiencer. We're looking for the experiencing, the nature of seeing, the nature of hearing. It's a little bit different than the seer or the hearer. It's Seeing and hearing are not um, subjects, right? They're, and they're not entities, and they're not objects. What is seeing and hearing? We can't get a hold of it, right? It's, it's just, they're types of knowing. Right? Seeing is a type of knowing. Hearing is a type of knowing. And it seems to be divided into a knower and a known. It seems to be divided into an experiencer and an experience. But, uh, in this instruction we're saying, can we open to just the experiencing? We don't need to divide it into a subject and an object. And we can't find this experiencing because it's not a, it's not a noun. Right? We can only find nouns. Like a seer is a noun and a hearer is a noun. But seeing is not a noun, so it can't be found. It's a process. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's hard to say what it is, experiencing. So related to this point, uh, <clears throat> I just, this is not in Menzan's text, but, um, but I just came across this teaching from uh, Hong Zhu, uh, one of uh, the Soto ancestors in China that is quoted periodically by Menzan. So this part's not quoted, but um, I just was impressed by this saying from another um, translation of Hong Zhu. Um, he says, 
How can you not see the way? The way, the Tao is right, is another name for, let's say, reality, Buddha, nature. How can you not see the way? In the eyes, it's called seeing the way. In the eyes, it's not called the seer. That would just be the subject that sees. But in the eyes, this Buddha nature, this um, the way, in the eyes, it's called seeing. Seeing is a type of knowing, a type of awareness, actually. Right? Seeing is a type of awareness. It's a, it's like, there's boundless awareness, and it's, and it's functioning. This awareness r- right now is functioning in these different modes simultaneously. This awareness is seeing. It is, it is, the activity of seeing. And it is hearing. So um, uh, Hongjir says, um, how can you not see the way? In the eyes, it's called seeing. In the ears, it's called hearing. In the nose, it's smelling. In the tongue, it's talking. In the hands, it's grasping. In the feet, it's running. Those who know call it Buddha nature. And those who don't know call it a kind of spirit or a kind of individual, <clears throat> personal soul, something like this. Interesting, I think, <clears throat> that he makes this point. It's easy to misunderstand. And w- one way we could hear this is, those who know call it Buddha nature, which we've been hearing is vast and boundless and uh, ungraspable, unlocated, timeless presence that takes the form of seeing and hearing and, uh, and even talking, uh, <clears throat> these types of knowing. Uh, so those who understand this call seeing and hearing, they call it Buddha nature. Those who don't know call it a kind of um, spirit, which we could understand as a kind of subject, <laughs> a kind of some personal spirit that I have and that each of us has separately, some sort of subjective spirit, or sometimes they translate this word spirit as um, like soul, which I would understand to be kind of something personal. Whereas Buddha nature is not really personal. It's, if it were personal, it would have a location and a a division between my Buddha nature and your Buddha nature. They'd be a little different. So we can't divide it like this. And, and then Hongjir continues, if you try to reason about it or divide it up, then you're swept right into karmic consciousness. Wow. There's just seeing, there's just hearing. If you try to figure it out or um, re- reason about it too much uh, or divide it up, okay, Where's the actual seeing part? It's over here. It's somewhere in the eye. No, no, no. It's not divided like this. <clears throat> but if we try to uh, divide it up, then, then we're swept right into karmic, dualistic consciousness, which is the realm of dividing experience and the realm of um, reasoning and thinking. Before we try to 
figure it out and divide it up. The seeing is, what is seeing? It's ungraspable. We don't know what it is, but there is seeing. Just like there is awareness present here, but we don't know what it is. Something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. So, like this. <clears throat> also, another thing that um, Menzan says in his um, essay is he defines um, this phrase that Dogen uses dropping off body and mind. We hear this a lot in Soto Zen circles. Because it's when Dogen was practicing with his teacher in China, he heard his teacher use this phrase. He was sitting zazen and he heard um, drop off body and mind. And when he heard those words, he saw like a face in this village. His perspective shifted. And this perspective shift in, in Zen that we call like awakening sometimes, interestingly, it usually doesn't happen just when people are sitting silently and still. It usually happens when they're hearing some words, strangely. That's, at least those are the stories that get recorded. So Dogen heard these words, drop off body and mind. And he'd been sitting for a long time, very present and relaxed and upright. And uh, those words like went straight to his heart and, uh, and uh, body and mind dropped off. <laughs> so then Dogen uses this phrase throughout his teachings. This is dropping off body and mind. Um, but it's, it's one of those poetic Zen phrases, like um, our true nostrils. <laughs> so, um, so this is Menzan's comment on what does this mean, dropping off body and mind. Shinjin Datsuraku, it, it is thoroughly understanding that body and mind and the world cannot be grasped by discriminating dualistic mind, and that reality itself is free from this dualistic dividing kind of mind. <clears throat> and then um, he says, furthermore, if, if you didn't like that definition, dropping off body and mind. Another way to say it is dropping off body and mind is simply not grasping the radiant light of the self. Not grasping the radiant light of the true self. Or um, it is releasing the radiant light of the true self. So, um, so one of the main sections of this, of this text that we were talking about um, yesterday here, but those online maybe didn't hear this. Men's on Zendi in this self-enjoyment samadhi teaching, he, um, first he just spends many pages saying how great it is. <laughs> just like celebrating it. It's the most amazing thing. One moment of, of um, practicing and verifying this self-enjoyment samadhi is better than like thousands of years without it. And, um, and it has all these different names, hundreds of different names. And, uh, and then he says, now you probably want to know what it is, <laughs> how to practice it. And he says, so now I will explain in detail and clarify, or explain in detail how to clarify and rely on this self-enjoyment samadhi. This is done 
simply by not obscuring the radiant light of the self, of yourself, your true self, your big, all-inclusive self, uh, Buddha nature. Ordinary mind, our original face before our parents were born, uh, the dual mirror samadhi, as we chanted this morning in that poem, <clears throat> Dung Shan said, it's not really that you are it, but in, in truth, it's really that it is you. I, Kokyo, am this boundless awareness. Dung Shan says, don't say it quite like that. But if you want to say, this boundless awareness is Kokyo, that's okay. And it's also all of you, all of us. There's no one who's not it. It is us. It is expressing itself as us. But to think that me, this limited person, is this boundless reality of Buddha is a little bit off. <clears throat> it's one way to understand Dung Shan saying, you are not it. In truth, it is you. What is this it? It is the dual mirror samadhi, which Menzan says is another name for self-enjoyment samadhi. <clears throat> so um, that, that is, <laughs> you could say, um, he, explaining in detail how to clarify and rely on the samadhi, he just did it in one sentence. It's simply not obscuring or hiding the radiant light of the self, the true self. <clears throat> how, do, how does the radiant light of the true self um, get obscured or hidden? This, this amazing thing can happen that, uh, <clears throat> that the radiant light of the self expresses itself, manifests itself, as, um, as colors and sounds and feelings and thoughts and all kinds of experiences. They're nothing but the radiant light itself, but it's the, it's the activity of the radiant light. Is everything that's happening is the activity or the expression or the manifestation of the radiant light. So this activity that is the radiant light isn't really obscuring the radiant light, it's expressing the radiant light. But the amazing thing is that this expression of radiant light seems to hide the very light that it's expressing. That's what's amazing. I think um, in the Srimala Devi Sutra, uh, Queen Srimala is teaching Buddha nature and she says something like this. She teaches most of the sutra, this queen, uh, which is kind of unusual, right? Teaches this Buddhist sutra. And Shakyamuni Buddha is kind of sitting in the assembly and, and, um, and at the end says, Bravo, Sri Mahadevi. <laughs> uh, well done. You said it just like it is. And it's, it's a Buddha nature, Tathagatagarbha Sutra. So I can't remember now whether it's Sri Maladevi says this or the Buddha says it to kind of like sum up the sutra. 
but I think he said, one of them says something like, or maybe they say in unison, <laughs> uh, something like, um, there's two things that are totally amazing. One is that there's this, this ungraspable Buddha nature that um, is always free and um, ever-present, something like this. And the other thing that's amazing is that, um, is that it can be obscured and hidden kind of by itself. I would agree, those, those two things are amazing. <laughs> I mean, amazing, but when we start to get too excited about it, then we used to call it just, it's ordinary mind. It's just like our awareness right now. It's not, from one perspective, it's not amazing at all. But, uh, you see, it's, there's this, our own awareness right now is always free and, um, and, um, and unchanging. Um, compassionate, loving presence. If we see it like that, then um, it's amazing. But also amazing is that it can, it can hide itself by expressing itself as like thoughts, and then these thoughts become so um, dominant that, um, that we, get, we get too zoomed in on the thoughts. We get too focused on the thoughts. <clears throat> so we forget that they are just emanations, that they are just um, expressions of the radiant light. We get, we get too caught up in the content of awareness, forgetting that the content of awareness is just awareness. So this why its perspective shift is helpful. So, um, <clears throat> so what we call obscurations to the radiant light like our obsessive thought patterns, and, or like you know, anger, greed, and um, these afflictive emotions, and and our discontent, all of this um, seems to um, it seems to hide the light. Right? But if we see all of these all of these experiences are actually the light itself, then what we call obscurations, we can shift the perspective and see what we call obscurations are really just expressions of light. What we call obscurations to the light are really expressions of the light. Can you follow that? This is a, it's a perspective shift and it's a subtle point and it could be taken um, as simply a recipe for starving people. Or, or we can open to, th these words are, don't have to be just some little dharma trick, but while we're listening right now, we can try out these different perspectives. <clears throat> so, so here's a part that we haven't heard yet um, in this assembly from Menzan's text, <clears throat> the part we, could, we can look at today. Menzan says, practice and verification beyond thought and no thought, beyond this like, um, dichotomy of thinking and not thinking, can be compared to the function of a mirror. Yesterday we brought up the mirror, but here he's going to elaborate on it. He says, a mirror reflects both beautiful and ugly things without distinguishing them. This is the natural function of a mirror. But the reflection 
which may be beautiful or ugly, or we like it or we don't like it, the reflection is not the mirror itself. The reflection is just an image. So uh, we talked about this some yesterday, but for those arriving, this is an analogy right, for um, uh, our original face before our parents were born is also called the jewel mirror. Presence, the self-enjoyment samadhi is also called um, the, the uh, great round mirror. Our awareness is like a mirror. Uh, it's an analogy, but it's a nice analogy. I think. It's like a mirror that's just open and aware, and um, anything can appear on the surface of this mirror, which it does. Not just visual images, but, but this kind of mirror reflects sounds, and thoughts, and bodily sensations. These are all experiences um, appearing within this mirror-like mirror awareness. So Menzan says, uh, the reflection on the mirror has different colors and so on, but it's not the mirror itself. The reflection is just an image. If you only see the distinction between the good and bad of thinking and think that this distinction is your original mind or your original face, it's the same as if you were to grasp the reflection in the mirror and think the reflection is the mirror itself. This is a mistake. He says, this analogy admonishes us not to get caught up in the distraction of thoughts. In other words, don't try to grasp the mirror in the images. Just be the mirror, and then we don't have to shut off the images, but just... Um, it's a shift of perspective. Now we're looking at the images, but their images are one with this mirror. So uh, he says, don't get caught up in the distraction of thoughts, the images on the mirror. And yet if you think that no thought or not thinking is your real mind and become attached to this condition of not thinking, where no good and bad arises, it's the same as thinking that where there's no reflection at all, that's the mirror itself. This is like becoming attached to the backside of the mirror. The backside of the mirror is like, doesn't really reflect anything at all. It's like there's nothing appearing on the backside of the mirror. So, um, so that's the other extreme. We're attached to the backside of the mirror. How nice, there's nothing happening here. There's no thinking happening. There's no distracting experience. I really like the backside of the mirror. <laughs> and he said, this is a problem too. So that's one extreme. We're attached to the backside of the mirror. The other ex extreme is we're attached to the images on the mirror. Right? These distracting thoughts we're like, and we say, that's who I really am, is these distracting thoughts and images on the mirror. The other would be the back side of the mirror. See how they're kind of like opposites, and they're these two extremes. And he's saying, neither one of them. Maybe some meditators might think the back side of the mirror would be awesome. I'd like to hang out on the back side. <laughs> so then Menzon says, if the mirror reflects nothing, 
it's the same as if it were a piece of stone or tile. It's not really like a mirror. The function of the light of the mirror is lost. If we're just into the backside, we're like not appreciating this amazing mirror-like capacity to express this entire world. The backside of the mirror, there is, like there is no world for the backside of the mirror. So this analogy, Menzan says, admonishes us not to get caught up in the dullness or neutrality of not thinking, especially a kind of dull not thinking. Well, if I just basically am mostly asleep, my thinking does calm down. <laughs> and it's kind of like hanging out in the backside of the mirror and there's like nothing really happening. So it's like, no, that's not really Zazen. It could be like a dullness kind of zazen, but it also could be like maybe a really deep, maybe he doesn't say this, but I would propose it, it could be like a really deep concentration state where there's no thinking at all, which the Buddha did teach this kind of thing and we could, we could practice this, it's not so easy. But um, I think that Menzan <clears throat> would say, you might be able to do that practice, but it's not really what the zazen that we're speaking of is about. We're not trying to stop thinking or get caught up in ah. So then Menzan says, as you know, neither the reflections on the mirror nor the backside of the mirror are the essential function of the mirror. So this is this line from Hongzhir, uh, the essential function of all the Buddhas and the functional essence of all the ancestors, the, um, which is this, talking about these two sides of reality. There's the unchanging essence, and then there's the expressed function. In a way, you could say this, the clear surface of the mirror is like the essence, and that the display of images is like the function of the mirror. <clears throat> so, Manzan says, neither the reflections on the mirror nor the backside of the mirror are the essential function of the mirror, which, like that of the radiant light, illuminates itself clearly. We talked about this yesterday, that the radiant light is illuminating all these appearances, but it's also illuminating itself. And a mirror is the same, you could say it's illuminating all the objects reflected on it, and it's illuminating itself. Um, but this is a little bit dualistic to say. It's illuminating outwardly and inwardly. So. Um, Strictly speaking, from the point of view of the radiant light or the mirror, <clears throat> it's actually not really illuminating um, things other than itself. Because these images that are appearing that seem like they're being illuminated by the light of awareness are actually awareness. So you could, strictly speaking, I think we could say that the radiant light of awareness is on, it only illuminates itself. You could say, but then how can we experience the zendo? Well, actually, that's, this, this zendo that we're experiencing is actually, is the radiant light of the self, illuminating itself. There is no other to illuminate from the perspective of the radiant light. Or, um, like Hongjir said, this, this radiant light is knowing without touching things. Menzan quoted this because um, there's nothing outside itself to touch. 
it's all inclusive. So um, then Menzan finishes this section by saying, you must realize that the Buddha's wisdom, like a great perfect mirror, is far beyond the dichotomy or the duality of thinking and not thinking. So that's, follow that section. It's not about it, grasping the content of thought and thinking, and it's not about stopping thinking. It's about just being a mirror that's very open to whatever appears on it, or the radiant light is almost the same metaphor. Radiant light just makes the mirror more three-dimensional. It's a spacious radiant light um, allows itself to manifest as thinking. The thinking that seems to obscure the radiant light of the self, but actually doesn't really ever obscure it. We can shift that perspective. And um, this all might sound kind of abstract. It might sound like a recipe. <laughs> so, um, so how would we actually practice this in zazen? Um, we're sitting zazen, or going about our day, and there's these thoughts arising. And we can, we can watch the thoughts, or we can practice letting go of the thoughts. We can practice um, following the breath, which is a way to kind of like put the attention on something other than the thought, put the attention on the sensation of breathing. And that's a way to kind of let go of the thoughts. Um, and, if, and it's a good practice to settle down more and more. There's less and less obsessive thinking or following the breath. Um, devotedly, but then when we're quite settled and present, then there's, and there's still some, some thoughts, we could try the practice of, here's a thought arising within the space of my zazen, and um, where is this thought happening? We could ask ourselves. It's another thought that we could ask ourselves. <clears throat> if we ask it in these words, where is this thought happening? It's like intentionally forming another thought. <laughs> so, um, but we're allowed to do that if we like. All these thoughts, what to do? Let them go, let them go. But what about having a good look at a thought when I'm quite settled in Zazen? There's this thought arising. It's kind of a miracle that a thought can arise. And then I can ask, where is this thought arising? Well, it's it's arising um, in awareness. It's not, a, it's not arising over there or there, or it's not even arising in here. If you tried to dissect a brain to look for where the thought is, <laughs> you wouldn't find the thought in there. Right? The thought is not um, located because it's just arising in awareness, and awareness is... is um, <clears throat> then we could ask, um, where is awareness? and also see that it's not located inside our head or our body or <clears throat> in this room because it's not a physical it's a, awareness is only physical things have locations a thought is not a physical thing it doesn't have a location but it, it does seem to be arising within awareness otherwise we wouldn't be aware of thought it must be arising within this awareness there's awareness of this thought so um, this is a perspective shifter. We're examining, not some, we're, we're, we're kind of like disengaging from the content of the thought. We're usually really into the content. 
well, this thought is about what I'm going to do after this machine, and then I'm going to do this and that. And we're kind of immersed in the content. This is a little bit like, yes, yes, that's what a thought is. It's a bunch of content. But we're like, let's become more curious about what a thought actually is, more interested in what a thought is than the content of the thought. That's, that's called the shift of perspective. We're allowed to do that if, if awareness lets us. And then, uh, where is this thought arising? It's kind of like, but what about the content? We'll just, you know, we'll deal with the content later. Where is this thought? Oh, it's happening in awareness. And I keep hearing this, all this talk about awareness is this like spacious, um, unlocated presence. The thought is arising with that matter. Maybe the thought even seems to be filling the space. It's not a, a located thing. So already, uh, it seems to me when we do this, it's a little bit different relationship to the thought. Now the thought is like this, some kind of expression happening in this unlocated space. It's more like we don't have to get rid, it's not a, at this point, if we see that the thought is this unlocated expression of awareness, appearing within awareness, as awareness, then we definitely do not have to get rid of the thought is not a distraction. It's not it's not um, obscuring the radiant light. You see how it's it's still a thought, but it's not obscuring the radiant light. But if we're if we're if we're trying to work out the content of the thought, I think that's what we call obscuring the radiant light of the self. So um, these are some teachings we've looked at this weekend from Menzan Zenji and um, <coughs> this whole treatises, maybe 20 pages or so, and you can find it online in this book called The Heart of Zen, and it's translated by Shohaku Okamura Roshi, great translator, and uh, <clears throat> I think, I think that um, it does nicely express uh, the heart of Zazen practice in a, in a, um, in a bright, uh, fresh kind of way. So, um, should we have some discussion? If you like, if you have any questions, clarifications, both online and um, in the room, do you all, um, since this is our last meeting, is there anything, uh, particularly any practical points about how to um, practice and verify the, <coughs> the radiant light of the self? In a way, maybe it's kind of clear, but when we actually start to do it more and more, it probably will bring up 84,000 questions. <laughs> it does for me. I have like, lots of questions in a way about it still. Even when, once we get the basic thing, it's like, may we spend um, um, the rest of this life clarifying this for the benefit of all beings. Yeah, yes. Should we turn this around? So you said this thing related to Dogen about body and mind. Yes. But when Reb was here a few months ago, he kept talking about drop into body. <laughs> is that I so? This is appropriate, but I'm still <laughs> <so> perplexed. <laughs> 
Yes, same, <laughs> same teaching, just like that street scene and that face um, are two different versions of the same picture, two different perspectives on the same picture. <clears throat> uh, you could say um, maybe dropping into body and mind is, is, kind of a, um, is kind of an entry gate into dropping off body and mind because if we're, if we're not, um, if we're say like not in the in our body, meaning like we're just we're thinking so incessantly that we're like maybe really uncomfortable or something, but we don't even notice it, or our posture is kind of like this, but like I <laughs> say, Rodin, Rodin, the, the thinker, that statue, the thinker. <laughs> He needs to drop into his body. <laughs> He's thinking too much. So, um, yeah, so that's why we have this, this, um, all this posture instruction for Zazen. To, um, you can say, drop into the body to become present, and um, drop into um, mind in a way is kind of like, kind of like the, you could say what we were just talking about, you could say, drop into noticing that we're thinking and then exploring the thoughts rather than just being kind of carried away by the thoughts. So you could say that's dropping into body and mind. And then when we drop into body and mind, um, then we, um, we have a, we're in a new, we're in new territory for then dropping off body and mind. Just dropping off body and mind again. Um, not grasping or releasing the radiant light of the self. Yeah, it seems like they go to, they're not contradictory, but they sound like it. So dropping into is sort of an access point. Yeah, I would say. To drop off. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then, or we could say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to drop into body and mind, and we do, and then we can ask, but who's dropping into body and mind? <laughs> and, oh. Maybe it's, it's the radiant light, and then is the radiant light now in the body and mind? And then we can explore and see. Not really, actually. It seems to me more like the body and mind are in the radiant light. The radiant light's not so much that this body is filled with radiant light, but the radiant light is filled with a bunch of bodies. Maybe both are true. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Mekhan Prado says, Hi, Mekhan. Can you talk more about the idea of no soul with the idea of storehouse consciousness? What is continued? I'm not sure I'm able to ask this question clearly. Oh, I think that was a clear question. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, maybe a big topic. But we have some time, so. <laughs> yeah, so these are some, some things we haven't talked about this weekend. <clears throat> the yoga chara tradition of the, of the storehouse consciousness to try to relate it to this weekend's teachings. So there's these, um, there's in this Buddhist school called yoga chara, there's, there's the teaching that there's eight types of consciousness. And consciousness is, uh, in Sanskrit is vijnana, vijnana. Um, and jnana means knowing or awareness, undivided knowing, 
like when Hongju says, knowing without touching things, that's the Chinese way of, of uh, translating jnana, undivided knowing or awareness. And then vijnana is divided knowing. It's, it's a knowing that seems to be divided into a subject and object. And it does seem like, habitually seems like, I'm over here talking to you over there. It seems like there's a division into a subject and an object. And then it, this teaching is that that seeming division is actually like an illusion, a very convincing illusion. So um, there's eight types of divided knowing, and they're called the five sense consciousnesses. So there's a seeing consciousness, or like an eye consciousness, a chakshur vijnana, an eye consciousness. So anytime we hear this word consciousness in today's story, we're talking about dualistic consciousness, and dualistic means it's, it's a knowing that seems to be divided into subject and object. So the eye consciousness seems like there's a, and the Buddha teaches it this way, like there's an eye over here that's seeing a color over there, and the consciousness that's joining the subject and the object is called a dualistic consciousness. It, it, it seems that way for us sentient beings. And there's an ear consciousness, a nose consciousness, a tongue consciousness, body consciousness is like tactile sensation, and a, a mind consciousness, mental consciousness, that knows, that like knows thoughts and, know, and uh, uh, has stories about colors and sounds. So it's a dualistic consciousness too, right? And uh, early Buddhism also teaches these six types. And then Yogacara adds in a seventh, and the seventh called klishtamanas, uh, so or like the afflicted mind, is, to tie it into this weekend's teaching, is another name for what we're calling the second type of self. It's also called the seventh consciousness in this system. The second type of self is, is when we think that there's this, flu we've, there's this flux of, flow of experience, impermanent, um, ungraspable um, uh, life experience, and then we grasp it as a... Um, we try to grasp it as this kind of singular, independent, permanent entity called me. This kind of imagined, separate self that has all these problems and um, is never good enough and, um, and um, is always, you know, assessing itself <laughs> and like this kind of thing. This is like kind of a mistaken thing. And this, in this Yogacara system, they say, this is so important this thing, this, this fundamental illusion that we all have is so prominent in how the mind works, let's call it a seventh consciousness. It's the, it's the sense of the illusory separate self. It's a kind of consciousness in the system that does that. So then there's an eighth, and the eighth is called the storehouse consciousness, which is what Mekon is asking about. <clears throat> It's a, also a dualistic consciousness, but it's like a, it's, the, it's kind of a big, um, it's an image for like this big kind of container or um, storehouse, alaya vijnana it's called, and um, it's the, um, you could say it's the collection of all experiences that we've ever had. So it's closely related to memory, 
And um, in Buddhism, there's multiple lifetimes, which she's bringing up too. So it's like, it includes all the memories from infinite past lifetimes. It's a big container, right? But of course, it's a consciousness. It's not a physical thing. So it's, a, it's not really big or small, right? It's, and it doesn't have a location. <clears throat> but it's, but each, in this model, in this, in this recipe system, it's like um, each person, not just people, but all sentient beings have their own storehouse consciousness. That's why we have our own memories that are different from each other and our own kind of personal evolution. Um, it is our, yeah, it's the collection of all our, our activities and then karma is a big um, part of this. Like karma is any intentional action. So any intentional action has some effect. So the, um, the effects of our actions are kind of planted in the storehouse consciousness. And then those seeds sprout and give rise to new experiences that when they like flower, then they drop new seeds. And this process is, is this flowing process called the storehouse consciousness. Um, but it's kind of a storehouse of delusion, uh, a storehouse of, it, it is a dualistic consciousness and it's, it stores all dualistic experiences of which there's a lot <laughs> to store that have happened for each of us. So, um, and that you could say they're all kind of, all these, all the dualistic experiences are kind of fueled by the seventh consciousness, the sense of the separate self, and they're using the first six consciousnesses of the senses and the mind to create experience that fills this storehouse consciousness, which is, we call it a storehouse consciousness, so then you think of it as like a ball of stuff. So that's the problem with calling it that. And, um, <clears throat> but, uh, if we see it more like, sometimes it said, it's more like a river than a ball of stuff. It's like a flowing stream, we call the storehouse consciousness. And um, it's a moment to moment changing, impermanent um, flow of karmic stuff that's unique to each person. And this flow, this flowing um, collection of cause and effect is what's said to be reborn, uh, lifetime to lifetime. So, so it explained, there was this teaching of rebirth before the storehouse consciousness was taught, but I, one of the main reasons it seems to be taught is to explain, to try to help explain a little bit more, what is this rebirth process when there's no separate self to be reborn? So that, like the second, type of self is this imagined idea of, of a separate entity called me, but that's not what's reborn because that's just an imagination. But what is reborn is, is this stream of, of individual karmic consciousness, which this Yogacara system calls the storehouse consciousness. And when, and when there's a body, the appearance of a body, it's said that the storehouse consciousness is what gives rise to the experience of a body. The consciousness kind of comes first, and it, it expresses itself as what we call a body, and it's, they're kind of fused together, the storehouse consciousness and this body throughout our lifetime are like inseparable. And you could say that at the moment of death, the, 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 the physical body 
can no longer um, stay connected to the storehouse consciousness. They start to separate. And the body has its own trajectory into, you know, earth or ashes or whatever. And the, and the storehouse consciousness has its own trajectory. Now it doesn't have, it's not linked to a body, but it's still, it's still containing all the, all the memories, all the karmic, particularly karmic patterns um, that make us unique. And that that is not a thing that's reborn, although it can sound that way. It's not like a beach ball of stuff that's reborn. It's a, like a river that's so-called reborn. Not maybe, maybe it's even to say rebirth is a little off. Maybe it's just that there's this flow called the storehouse consciousness that manifests a body at what we call birth, and then at, the, at what we call death, that body is no longer sustainable. So if the storehouse consciousness um, then basically, you could say, manifests a new body, connects with a new body. So it's not really that there's something that's reborn, it's just that there's a series of manifested bodies. Just like in this life, the body we woke up with this morning is a different one than we went to sleep with last night. Slightly different. It's so similar that we think it's the same, but of course it's not because over 10 years, it's actually quite different. And it's actually changing moment to moment, and so is the storehouse consciousness. So then, um, Megan asked, uh, what about this soul? So this is, it's really like a Christian term, so I'm not sure exactly what it means there, but I, I think in Christianity it's maybe something like that, out, that, that outlives our human life. Maybe that would be one version of it. So in that way it's sort of like the storehouse consciousness because that also, you could say, outlives our this particular lifetime, but it's not an uh, so maybe more like one sort of personal entity, whereas this storehouse consciousness um, is not an entity, it's a flux and flow, like a river of tendencies. Um, yeah, and so, um, so this, this word here, I, I don't have the Chinese, but I think that it's this character that that uh, is being translated as um, spirit uh, is this word that means something, sometimes gets translated as soul or spirit. Um, I think in, in, in Christianity, which is a kind of modern religion in China, I think they use this character for like the Holy Spirit, but it's also, it's an ancient word. It means something like, like it's some, I think in the Zen text, when they use this, they mean some reification of this boundless Buddha nature, that the, and that it's not that. And from as soon as, from the old days, when they started talking about Buddha nature, they're like, it's not some kind of fixed personal thing. I think that's the main point here. And storehouse consciousness is not a fixed thing, but in it's kind of personal in, the, in that we each have our own. And uh, whereas Buddha nature, we don't... Eat, it's not exactly like we have our own individual Buddha natures. It's because Buddha nature is indivisible. And then to tie it into um, to this weekend's discussion, we could say, what is the true, the true nature of the storehouse consciousness? 
the storehouse of delusion that's kind of like a personal um, a personal patterning uh, what is its true nature its true nature and actually the it's taught like in the Lankavatara Sutra that the storehouse consciousness is actually Tathagatagarbha which is another name for Buddha nature so that's how they tie they, they do actually they're tied together in the, some sutras but from the when it's obscured and it seems to be obscured it's called the storehouse consciousness and when it's unobscured uh, it's actually the radiant light of the self and there's other teachings too like um, in Yogacara system where um, at Buddhahood at the complete awakening of a Buddha that the storehouse consciousness of delusion is is revealed to actually be what's called the great perfect mirror <coughs> non-dual awareness it just seemed to be a storehouse consciousness and in fact all the eight consciousnesses all these eight dualistic consciousnesses are each revealed to be types of non-dual knowing even the sense consciousnesses in this yoga chakra system upon Buddhahood the Buddha is no longer uh, like seeing Guan Yin on the altar over there that's like dualistic seeing their seeing consciousness is revealed to be um, non-dual in other words <clears throat> that, that appearance of Guan Yin over there is actually not over there it's it's um, it's appearing within this unlocated awareness and it has no location. It's a kind of non-dual seeing, but the Buddha can still um, talk about Guan Yin to people who see Guan Yin as over there, something like that. <laughs> that was a long answer, but it was a lot it was a it was a big question. Was that is that satisfying? <laughs> Mekon song? Thank you. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Matthew says, do we need to engage? No. Don't we need to engage with the content of thoughts sometimes? You said that this is obscuring the radiant light. How do we reconcile this? Ooh, good question. Yes. Um, yes. It does seem like the function as a human being, we need to engage with the content of thoughts. So, um, uh, speaking about the not engaging part, I would say, during zazen is a time when we don't need to engage in the content of thoughts. So um, it's a kind of a special situation. Um, we often do, including myself, engage in the content of thoughts during zazen, but um, we really don't need to. And uh, it's nice not to, right? It's nice to explore the nature of thought and engage in the content. It's hard not to, but. We really, we really don't need to. But outside of zazen, yes, it, we definitely need to. Um, so uh, the more we get used to not having to, um, in zazen, not having to engage in the content and exploring how thoughts are just this expression of awareness, um, we get more and more used to that in zazen than maybe outside of zazen, even when we are engaging in the content of thoughts. Um, we, we trust more and more deeply that the whole thing, even our, even our deep engagement in the content of thoughts, 
is all really the, um, the expression of the radiance of the self. So that's one way to look at zazen practice and, and retreat in doing a lot of zazen. It's just to get more and more used to this new perspective so that it does percolate into our busy, active engagement with the content of thoughts. And, um, and it's not going to be as clear, and the radiant light of the self may not be as clear and vivid, the apparent, when we're really busy engaging these, but, but the more we get used to it, in zazen and hearing teachings about it and and trusting it more and more then it could be that um, this trust actually carries over into even really busy activity maybe even unconsciously trust is not exactly a, a conscious thought anyway it's more just like yeah i'm immersed in this busy activity and there's uh, like there's somebody here who knows that it's all kind of like okay and spacious at the same time who is that? I know is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good one. Which is also, um, we talk about this and like, yeah, we'll just do this in zazen. Um, one time, we'll clarify what thought is, and then we're like, I guess we're then a Buddha and we can stop. <laughs> but we all know that ridiculous, but but it's more like we're getting these teachings about one moment of zazen, and then, of course, we have to. Do it a lot. This is a good, this is a good um, kind of conclusion of Sashin message, right? <laughs> it's like we got, we're clarifying this more and more. Hopefully, it brings up even more questions as we keep clarifying it. And it's not like a one-time thing, <laughs> obviously. And and there does seem to be some correlation. It's just this is just the realm of cause and effect, conventional cause and effect. But there seems to often be some correlation between the amount of zazen that we're doing and the developing of this trust, how things are. We sit a little bit, there may be a little trust occasionally, and if we sit a lot, I think that's why these ancestors, they, they sat a lot of it. But that's, we've already got it, we're just, we're just, yeah, we're sitting in the radiant, as the radiant light of the self. Do we have to do it again? <laughs> <laughs> You have to like, like, you can dip the tea bag in the tea, and um, and it'll turn the tea like a little bit, a faint shade of green, um, or you can like steep it in there, right? You can let it sit there till, it, <clears throat> yeah, not just three minutes, but like three thousand eons, <laughs> <laughs> till that tea is like so black, <laughs> and and. It, the tiniest sip of that tea, you won't be able to sleep for <laughs> an eon. <laughs> yes. Any other questions? Matthew says thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Matthew. Uh, there are no more questions here right now. Oh. Yes. I was wondering, could you come to the table here? Oh. Oh. So, um, the question is, how to bring a retreat home? That's always the question at the end. So. <laughs> Um, that's why I already pre-answered your question <laughs> with this tea bag. <laughs> so um, yes, I, I mean, so one point is um, to keep sitting zazen, like formal zazen. Everything can be zazen in a way, but like um, how fortunate most people are in the, in the auspicious cloud 
Sangha, the Houston Zen Center Sangha. You can sit with a group is great. You can sit at home. If you're in other Sanghas, you can sit anywhere. That's one of the nice things about sitting Zazen. You can do it pretty much anywhere. I, I heard that one um, advanced uh, Tibetan practitioner did a, um, they have this three-year retreat tradition. Right? They did a, um, usually like sealed in a cave or some really quiet remote mountain place. But this person did a three-year retreat on like the crossroads of this really busy intersection in India, in a city, something like that. So there's cars honking and like exhaust all the time and like, like I'm going to do a three-year retreat on this corner. I don't know if it's a fable, if they really completed the whole thing, but sometimes I, I think about that when I, when I travel back and forth um, to, uh, oh no, I guess, I guess it's more when I would go to Florida to visit my parents. The, the Atlanta airport, I mean, all airports are pretty chaotic, but the Atlanta airport is like maybe the biggest one I've ever been in. It's like, it takes like a while just to like get around it, right? And it's just huge and just people everywhere, like 24-7, right? These airports are. And I'd be in there sometimes and have this fantasy, like I could see doing a three-year retreat in the Atlanta airport. <laughs> because it's so big, you, you, could, you could probably not get kicked out. You could just keep moving around every day. You could go to like a different wing. And, um, and they have those TVs on like all night, right? Who decided that? <laughs> Do people really want to watch like the news at like 2 a.m.? Or the people in the airport at that time, maybe they'd like to rest a little with the TVs. And they're like, TV is like every 20 feet. So like, this would be a great place for a three-year retreat. But... My practice isn't quite this advanced yet. We're working up to it. I'd like to do a little more quiet retreats first. But, um, but um, in that spirit, you could take, um, you could take this retreat into your um, <clears throat> daily life, however busy and chaotic it is, however many hours the TV is blaring, um, and, and people are coming and going, and there's, there's a mess everywhere and, um, to clean up. We just know that and trust that the radiant light of the self, by its very definition, by its very nature, is never goes anywhere. It's, it's incapable of going anywhere, as we said this morning. It does not go or come nor rise nor stand. Baba Wawa. Is there anything said or not? These are like five, the f in, from the Parinirvana Sutra, this Buddha Nature Sutra, that, that phrase of Dungshan comes from describing Buddha nature as having these five qualities of, a, of an infant, an infant that um, can't quite go or come or, or stand or, um, or abide, and that can't quite talk about this, ba ba wa wa. So, so these, like in that, those aspects of like an infant, it's one of those strange metaphors, that's like Buddha nature. So um, it doesn't go anywhere, it, it doesn't, um, it can't be lost. It's one of these strange paradoxes, right? Buddha nature can't be lost, but it can't be found either, because it can't be, it's not a thing to, it can't be found as an experience, but it allows all experience, and we can practice and verify it by simply not um, obscuring this radiant light self. So any moment, Zazen's, very conducive practice because it's so simple. But even in busy activity, 
um, exact same practice, right? It's just remembering is another way to say it. Yeah, like all these people are like knocking at the door and calling on the phone and there's this pile of dishes to wash in the sink. And um, we might remember, oh, what about the radiant light of the self? Oh yeah, it's exactly, it's in exactly the same condition as it was at the auspicious cloud retreat center. It's ex- it hasn't changed a bit, but I'm so involved in all this stuff and I do have to go answer the door now, but um, now that I remembered it for a split second, the radiant light of the self, now I can open the door and say, yes? <laughs> May I help you? <laughs> because also, we didn't talk about, it's just about time to stop, but another closing thought is that um, uh, it's taught like in this Parinirvana Sutra that um, another name for Buddha nature is um, love and another name is compassion. So, uh, <clears throat> not exactly like an emotion, but we could say what is true love is just, it's like um, appreciating our shared being. Isn't it kind of like that? Uh, love could be defined as just, we are sharing our, this present awareness, and when we're appreciating that we're sharing this awareness, it's very intimate, actually. We're really not separate. And maybe there's a feeling that comes with that, but you could say that is love, and also the classic Buddha, Buddhist definition of love is just wanting others to be happy. So that it's a natural quality of Buddha nature. It, it wants, because it is enjoying itself all the time, right? It's happy. Not happy, human happy, but it is just okay. And it wants, um, it wants all the, the beings that are its manifestations. It wants them to be aligned with its reality, so it wants them to be okay too. So we could say, it is love, and it is compassion. It wants all beings to be free from, free from suffering. That's the Buddhist definition of compassion. It wants to relieve all suffering, and it's not afraid of suffering, because it sees that all suffering is just itself. So those elements of, of the radiant light are, are the, what, what really benefit beings, right? Love and compassion. Luckily, they don't need to be created, right? They're naturally, um, they're natural qualities of the radiant light. It is taught uncontrived qualities. When it, the less it's obscured, the more they... On that note, let us um, do the next thing. <laughs> First, let any merit that we've gathered here this weekend Merit is like result of virtuous activity, and everybody's been making a great, um, sincere effort to sit still and silently and radiantly um, practice. Come all the way out here. Spend your precious weekend uh, in this in this um, trapezoidal room. <laughs> <laughs> this is devotion. This is virtuous activity, and so. Um, it's, it's gathered merit, whether we know it or not. So any the results of our virtuous activity, we, we gather up, we collect, and, um, <clears throat> and we dedicate, we offer it. We, don't, we enjoy it, 
because merit is enjoyable. That's also is that's part of the teaching. The result of virtuous activity is joy, actually. So any joy that we gather, even if it's barely perceptible, um, it's a good it's a good thing. We enjoy it. It enjoys itself, and we share it because um, we don't hold it as a, for our separate self. We share it with everyone naturally, and we wish this to be so. That's what we call dedication. We dedicate the merit we've gathered this weekend to all beings everywhere. May everybody uh, discover and um, and shift their perspective on the on the radiant light of the self, and may all. Um, suffering beings who don't have a practice, may they, may they too f discover in whatever way they can this radiant light. And may all the human-caused um, problems on this earth, like war and climate change and such things, may, we, um, may the intelligent, amazing hearts and minds of humans find ways to uh, relieve these uh, forms of, of suffering and uh, may our own practice too um, continue to develop endlessly, always for the benefit of all.